Welcome back, warriors. Tansei, Sego, Ani, Buju, Quainin, Deluisi, Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And today we are so lucky to have with us a real Mohawk warrior in mind, body, and spirit, who is a true role model to Native people's all over Turtle Island, especially young Indigenous women, and her name is Ellen Gabriel. For decades, she has been a Native rights and human rights activist here on Turtle Island, and I don't think there's anyone who doesn't know her. And she's not just well-known here uh, north and south of the fictional border in the Canada and U.S., but also on the international stage. She's won numerous awards for her advocacy, and she's a total expert on Native issues, and you'll frequently see her before parliamentary and Senate committees. And she also used to be the president of the Quebec Native Women's Organization, um, where she uh, held that post for more than six years. I am such a huge fan. I am so grateful that you're here. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Thank you very much, Pam. I'm just, honestly, I... You are one of the people that are like the, you know, veterans of, of, you know, native activism and resistance and also revitalization and protecting our culture and languages. And, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited for all of my listeners to hear from you today. But before that, um, I'm wondering if you would like to introduce yourself and where you're from in the way that you like to do it. Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. So my name is, my Mohawk name is Katsitsakwas and I'm Turtle Clan from the ancient community of Ganesadage. And um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I just said we'll should greet all um, uh, of creation, the Creator, um, to be alive on this this yet another day. And peace be in your mind for what I'm about to say. Well, that's awesome. Thanks again for you know being on the show and um, for all of the people who are listening. Um, I have been following Ellen Gabriel since I was very young. Mm -hmm. um, I was in university and I used to tend bar at a hotel bar when the uh, Oka situation sprang up in the media. And as, as everyone knows, very few Native issues ever got in the media, uh, especially prior to then. Our, our issues were just considered non-issues. It had to be something really big. But what they called the Oka standoff or the Oka protest, or the Oka blockade. There's been many words used to describe it, um, but it was uh, Mohawk peoples defending their territories, um, and 
It was an, it happened for an extended period of time, and it was probably one of the most impactful situations for me as a young person trying to learn about advocacy and what my role was and beyond my own nation. So this was really the first time that I started to look outwards and would listen to you in the media and how you were just so you were so calm and reasoned and and you were just such an an um, amazing emissary for the Mohawk people and it profoundly changed my life knowing you know and seeing our people on the media every night defending our territories in a in a broader sense and over time I watched what you did I've met you in different scenarios um always advocating strenuously, never, never, ever compromising your values, always knowing for sure where you were on each of these issues. And I've noticed over the years, like I told you just before we started to record, that less and less people um, remember Oka. Maybe it's because mm -hmm. of their age, or mm -hmm. maybe it, that wasn't their interest, but it's now in the media again. And yeah. there's a lot of different people talking about it, with, uh, asserting a lot of different things. And mm -hmm. I want to get to the truth because you've been there mm -hmm. throughout all of it. You know the facts. And and the thing I care most about on this show, Warrior Life, is people hearing from authentic Indigenous voices, first and foremost, and the facts about these scenarios. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what was the situation in Ogun and what happened? Uh, yeah, in 1990, uh, the, the people of Ganesadaga were were threatened um, again, yet again, um, by the golf course, which was created the year I was born in 1959. And it's the it was the last piece of uh, common lands, they call them common lands. And so we on, on March 9th in 1990, we put up a, a blockade on a secondary dirt road that wasn't even plowed. Um, and uh, we wanted to make sure that nobody touched uh, the pines, the sacred pines that our ancestors buried. But also as well, we were protecting the, our burial grounds, which the municipality of Oka, the investors, the golf club, uh, wanted to dig up our ancestors, my family, uh, my mom and dad are buried there, and um, extend their parking lot. So people were outraged. Uh, you know, we're we're known as being a very divided community, but for that issue, people seem to have got together. And so they had three injunctions against us. There was a, an aborted police uh, Sutitz Quebec raid on May 1st and scared a lot of people from here. So um, by the time July rolled around on July 11th, there was uh, there wasn't many many of us, but we did have people from other. Ganyakahaga uh, communities because we said this is a nation issue. It's not just an issue for Ganesadage. Uh, we we invite all Ganyakahaga people to come. We didn't want, you know, the warrior flag to be flown. We didn't want weapons, um, but, you know, others still just brought the weapons in just because for whatever reason they had. And, you know, 29 years later, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that they did because uh, on f 5.15 in the morning on July 11th, the SQ paramilitary squad, which included the um, MUCTC, the police from Montreal, and the members of the Canadian Armed Forces, along with the SQ, uh, raided us. We thirteen women went to the front, including some some young women, very young women and elders. So there was a mixture of age. Thirteen of us went to the front because our 
um, discussions that said the women will go to the front because the women hold title to the land. So when the women went to the front and they couldn't scare us, they were aiming their weapons at us. Uh, they decided they were going to shoot a tear gas at us. So they shot tear gas to our right. They shot tear gas to our left, and it was blowing back on them. We weren't. <laughs> there was nothing there. They, you know, I think that's because we were burning tobacco when they arrived, and then they shot one behind us, and um, we had to leave. But we did that three times, and. The community started arriving after that third time and kept saying, oh, people should go to the front. And we said, we, we've already done that. It's very scary. Let's just just stay here. So after about three three hours of negotiating, uh, the SQ saying that, uh, you know, we're not here to do politics. Uh, we come here to do uh, our job and people have to leave. And we said, no, nobody's going to leave. You can take down the barricades. We're just we're going to stay here and, and there'll just be another one that'll go up anyways. Um, the, the police, for some reason, uh, unbeknownst to me to this day, opened fire and they were met with fire. And, you know, many of us could feel the bullets uh, going by our heads and seeing it and going into the sand, the beautiful sand that uh, that, that is included in the name of Ganesadaga, the, the place where the crusty sand dunes lie. And it started a 78-day siege where our fundamental human rights were violated by the Sutitz Quebec. The Canadian Army, uh, the RCMP, the, um, the uh, our sister community in Ganawage blocked the Mercia Bridge and threatened to blow it up if anybody was heard or there was a second uh, attack, which, you know, the the Premier of Quebec, Robert Barassa at the time, wanted to send in the Canadian Army day one. And it was only through the, the urgings of the late John Chacha, Minister of Indian Affairs for Quebec, to, who said, no, no, let's try and negotiate something. But it was uh, it was something I think a lot of us never thought we'd survive. Um, you know, being denied food, water, uh, medicine, uh, baby food. Baby food was not allowed. Diapers were not allowed. The SQ would confiscate them, making people who were you know there was some of our elders that were going through chemotherapy, making them stand in the hot sun. As you know, we're seeing hot weather now. It was pretty hot summer. It was all kinds of thousands of human rights violations. Federation of Hum International Federation of Human Rights documenting everything, saying that the government never negotiated in good faith, and uh, so they. This is the reason why you know they could have they could have resolved this. We we could have avoided what we have seen in the last two summers and all the homes that have been built if the government of Canada had negotiated in good faith and said all this pines area because there's three sections of the pine and there's another area that's not being discussed. Um, if they had met with the Longhouse and they, they could have met with the band council, included us with them, uh, this would all have been avoided. And, and two years ago, uh, when we saw that they were still cutting the pines, you know, I'm, I was there with my elderly aunts and some young women, and uh, we we said we're going to come here. We were confronted by the Maravoka. Um But the, the crazy thing about all this is, you know, um, people forget that the violence that was uh, initiated in 1990 was initiated by the white people, the white settlers. We were peaceful, we weren't bugging anybody, we never blocked a highway until we were attacked on July 11th, and then we put up a defensive barricade near the golf course driveway. And, uh, you know, the mayor, Aboka, another young man, uh, um, has put, uh, has made a threat against the the Mohawks living here saying that um, 
you know, he that's because he doesn't understand what happened. Ninety, he said he, you know, nineteen ninety, the Mohawks started a, a crisis, and this time it's going to be the white people who are going to start a crisis against the Mohawks. And you know, making these kinds of threats, uh, you know, without being charged for public um, mischief or. Uh, we we know that the justice has not been on our side, and it's it's mm. it's it's been a pretty hard struggle the past twenty nine years for many of us who are, have been fighting for the land all this time. So how did it end, Ellen? I mean, for people who don't know the details or weren't born back then, who, mm. how did it end? So you've had this long um, Mohawk defense of ter- those specific territories. Mm. What made it all come to an end? Was there an agreement reached? Was there a negotiation? No. no, there was no there was no agreement. I mean, the 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 only there was two negotiators: one federal, one provincial. And the provincial negotiator had a mandate uh, to for the dismantling of the barricades on the Mercier Bridge. And once the Mercier Bridge was opened up, then then we were vulnerable. The federal government never the the federal representative never even had a mandate. He had he had nothing to give us. So they all they wanted was put your weapons in a pile and line up on the side of the road and there's going to be SQ and army buses that will take you somewhere for questioning. And people said no way. Um, and you have to understand that we're a checkerboard. So I was up at the food bank for a little while and I had to leave the community because of for, for different issues, uh, for safety issues. And so uh, September 26th, I think, uh, the army said, well, okay, you guys, you, you know, we'll, we'll take you to, uh, I think it was Farnham. The people decided to go out another way and uh, it was almost like a riot. But um, what, ha- what ended up happening is that they, they surrounded the treatment center, which was where we had our negotiations, where we discussed our strategy. And it's part of, just before the golf course, it's in the Pines. Uh, and the rest of the community was held hostage in their own homes by, you know, every every hundred beaners there was um, an army barricade. So people couldn't leave their homes without risking not being able to come back from by the Canadian Army. So that day, um, the people of the, in the treatment center walked out. That's who they were after. Um, but it was the whole community that was affected. And uh, there, was, there was a trial. Um, I testified at the trial three days, uh, and uh, there was a trial, there was a coroner's inquest. I, I testified there for about a week and was almost charged with contempt of court. Uh, I was subpoenaed by the, the insurance company of the golf course. Uh, it, never mm-hmm. ended. it never ended, and we were always harassed by the Sotets Quebec when we would leave the community. So it, it continued for us for a long time. So, Ellen, I remember all that all that you know, time ago, seeing you in the media um, with all of this going on and, of course, you know, the government and and law enforcement with their own propaganda, but I was always seeing you in the media. Can you explain what your role was during this process? Yeah, I I was chosen to be the spokesperson for the people of the Longhouse. And um, once we were raided on July 11th, they said I did a really good job, so the community decided to keep me on for the community. Uh, once the warrior flag went up flying, I was also a warrior spokesperson. Uh, I was also a negotiator and um, one of the representatives from my community that negotiated, well, 
in these false negotiations was sitting at the table with uh, these these two employees of the government. And um, my duty was to really convey the message from the people inside the community. Yeah, to people who it doesn't sound like they were very interested in listening or making any sort of true negotiated resolution. Uh, not at all. I mean, the, 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 the main concern the whole summer was not our safety or, or anything like that. It was the dismantling of the Mercy Bridge and the inconvenienced motorists who were always, like, they, I don't know if you remember this, Pam, mm -hmm. but at night they would be burning Mohawk effigies mm -hmm. um, in front of this Petro-Canada station, yelling all kinds of slander or, or not-so-flattering words at us. And, um, you know, there was many human rights abuses in Ganawaga as well, and uh, torture. Uh, the police and the Canadian Army committed torture against uh, Mohawk men and uh, allies and even women. So it, we felt a lot safer behind the barricades when mm -hmm. we saw when we saw the the craziness, especially you know when we saw the people in Ganawagi leaving and the police and RCMP standing by while you know white supremacists were hurling huge rocks at, uh, at innocent Mohawks uh, who were trying to leave Ganawagi because they were afraid that the the army was going in to to slaughter their community. So. For us on this side, um, it was it was so frustrating. A lot of anger, um, you know, a lot of talk about <laughs> demolishing the golf club uh, itself, mm -hmm. but that didn't happen. We we maintained um, we maintained and and uh, just I guess we just pushed down that anger because we said you know if we do something, that, that's an excuse for the army to come in and, and open fire on us. So it was there was a lot of people who who had to maintain calm with the men and um, it was hard for us too because we were we were hurting inside to see that this kind of trauma being inflicted upon innocent people and and one one elder died from that he had a rock thrown uh, through the window and landed on his chest so we forget about that elder every time when we talk about 1990 and you know i remember seeing that on the media seeing images not just of the burning effigies of of mohawk but the cars going under uh it looked like a bridge or a ramp and people throwing you could literally see people throwing rocks and then the media saying look at the violent mohawks but <laughs> I, I remember my brother saying hey those aren't the mohawks those aren't the mohawks throwing yeah. those rocks you know it was everything seemed like you couldn't trust anything in the media it was all twisted to yeah. make it look like the Mohawks were some kind of threat when in fact it was clearly the opposite. No, that's it exactly. And we would also, we'd, we'd confront journalists and say, listen, you know, we sat down, we explained to you, uh, we thought you got the story right. And they said, yeah, we, we tried, but our producers were editing us. And it's our producers at the, you know, working with the Canadian government and the Quebec government that changed the story. So they would always try and villainize us. And, and as you know, indigenous people throughout history have been villainized for defending mm -hmm. what, little, what little we have left. And the rock throwers, there was three men that were arrested. They never, they never had to endure criminal records. One, one uh, became a police officer, one a security guard. Uh, I think the other one joined the army. Yeah, it was just like a slap on the wrist and um, Nothing, nothing. And like I said, that the violence has always been initiated by by the settlers. And uh, it's you know, as we see today, you know, that's still happening.
and that you know we're 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 portrayed as violence even in our defense so defending your life or trying to protect your territory is seen as violence against the people who are actually violently invading it or violently trying to stop the process and uh, now there's there's a lot of people as you know online as the time when anything comes in the media saying oh well the you know the the blockade or the standoff or the land defense back then in 1990 that all ended because the government agreed to give them their land back mm-hmm. but but you're saying that there was no agreement that came out of that negotiation no the only thing that they they stopped was the condominium development um, okay. in the pines and they stopped them from bulldozing our, our cemetery um, a lot of the unresolved land disputes, like 300 years of, of land disputes, they had promised to to deal with and include the longhouse and quickly reneged as, as soon as it came out of their mouths. So it's not been settled. It's never been settled. The Kretschian government tried with Bill S-24, which is called the Gunnestage Land Governance Agreement and Code, is an interim one, which this present Mohawk Council is, is implementing. Um, and it's like harmonization, which is something I think everybody in the rest of Canada is rejecting, but but we have to put up with it. And uh, I often say, like, you know, that what we were hearing in the village of Oka, which is also going to Sadage, by the way, Oka is going to Sadage. Oh, okay. Just just to be clear. And it's it's a colonial name that the white settlers put for, for when they where they live, but it, it's still part of our traditional settlement. And um, they're saying, you know, well, if if this person allow, if we allow this person to gift the Mohawks this land, we'll be surrounded by Mohawks, mm. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! We're going to be surrounded by the bad Mohawks, you know. And you know, there's there's good people and bad people on both sides of this coin. There's good people in the village of Oak or the Quebecois who live in Gunnisadaga, and there's good people in Gunnisadaga and there's you know we we have our our own problems but mm-hmm. a lot of it the divisions or whatever is appears to be divisions is colonial created this is comes from the church uh demonizing any kind of thing anything that's traditional whether it's ceremonies songs uh or the governance structure and uh we we see that today in in a community that's that's afraid to do something so there's a handful of people going in there or a lot of people say like they they have come up to me and say you know like don't stop what you're doing i can't go there because i work for the band council or i work in one of the services and uh, they were told that if they go they'll be fired so we have we have a lot of cultural self-hatred that's mm-hmm. that's going on so essentially none of the land was returned to Ganasatage, it was never added back to reserve or given in any kind of way. It, like none of those land issues have been resolved. No, not really. They they what they did for us, which is maddening, is it's held in trust, so it's for our benefit and use only. Okay. And they can appropriate it and they can take it back anytime. This is this is the frustrating thing about the status of our lands is that they can they can appropriate it any time and they wouldn't dare, mind you. Yeah. But um, they bought they bought out some of the the white settlers and bought bought their houses and had them sitting there doing nothing. So people just went in and lived in it because it would, it would have been ruined. 
they've tried to make it uh, more contiguous, but it's it's still pretty much a patchwork because, you know, it goes back 300 years where the seminary of St. Sulpice came and stole land. Um, tried to, they, they, I want to say misinterpreted because they did this intentionally on a treaty that the people who were already living here when they brought the Christian Mohawks, Nipissings and Algonquins here in 1721, there were already people here, so they said, we were going to make a treaty with them called the Two Dog Wampum. And when you cut a tree, you have to tell us, you know, because they came in the dead of winter, because we have, you know, this is how we use the land and we don't want you to destroy it. The seminary quickly turned it around and said, well, if the Mohawks cut a tree, it's illegal, go arrest them. So for 300 years, our people have been battling jails, poverty, uh, really, really terrible oppression, um, on top of all the other things that, that other communities have uh, had to endure. So. It's a it's a different kind of situation here. So in the media now, and you know, one of the reasons why we're talking about this is because, you know, um, all over Twitter and Facebook and even mainstream media, Oka's in the news again. You know, mm-hmm. uh, people are saying Oka, 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 and people are surmising what's going to happen next, and is there some kind of deal? Is there no deal? And and you know. Like I said, I care very much about the facts. Do you know, like, what is the current situation that's playing out in the media right now? <laughs> it's all about he said, she said, and it seems to be like between the mayor of Oka and uh, the headbound counselor here, um, Mr. Simon. You know, they're going back and forth. But it's also, it, it it's about this, yeah, this, this gentleman, he's not young, he's actually uh, an older man who is very rich, has bought a lot of land around this area and in other municipalities. And six years ago, he came to the Cultural Center and met with a few of us. And this, the same thing that he's offering today is what the Mohawk Council has, has signed an MOU with, um, which is he'll give us back this land as an ecological gift. Now, in Canada, an ecological gift means you have a foundation. So... We'll be will be one of the seats on this foundation, along with mm. the municipality of Oka, along with him, along with some other businessmen, uh, and you can never develop on it, which is fine. I would like to keep the the pine forest as it is, but it, it is getting sick because of invasive species and climate change. In exchange for allowing him to continue to sell land, oh. which which we rejected in the longhouse, we rejected this, but the Moha Council is is going along with it and. This is where we see that people don't really understand some, you know, the, the powers that be, the recognized authority from government of Canada, don't really get what's going on. In fact, they weren't there to help us protest. Uh, it wasn't even on the radar. If, if, uh, if we left it up to them, there'd be homes there and probably more of the pines would have been cut. But uh, the developer, Mr. Golin, is... Um, is saying that you know the rest of his land is up for sale, and this is all in our traditional homeland, oh. uh, the part of part of the park where my my you know my parents say they used, they went there and people, people were using that part, but now it's a park, and for some reason, um, the the government of Canada, fraudulently sold the land to someone who sold the land to Mr. Golan, so the government of Canada is is directly responsible for the the problems and the conflict that we're seeing today. And Minister Bennett was asked, I asked her to intervene two years ago, and she refused. She said that uh, we cannot presume to tell uh, the government of Quebec what to do, nor 
the government uh, or the municipality of Oka. So they've created a problem, and now wow. they're in a crisis situation, and it's it's all on their shoulders. It's not no one else's shoulders, but theirs. Wow. I mean, it, it always seems to come back to that. And I mean, if you're talking about any other situation, I mean, I certainly, my next door neighbor can't fraudulently sell me my other neighbor's land and then yeah. get away with that. I mean, it mm-hmm. would be a nullified sale. And, yeah. you know, sorry for the person who didn't know, but mm-hmm. th- there's there's underlying foundational fundamental rights at stake here that you cannot just compensate with a check. Well, well, that's it exactly. And, and it's not for lack of trying. And many generations before mine have, have tried and nobody has listened. And um, we, you know, we are always pushed to that point where we exhaust everything and we've exhausted everything with the Trudeau government. We've sent them letters. Uh, they, We've asked the Confederacy to step in. Uh, you know, they don't recognize traditional governments. And this is this is the flaw of this whole reconciliation process is it's it's a name only reconciliation. If there's mm-hmm. no there's no reparations, um, there's no uh, undoing the injustices that have been done. And and we told we've said, you know, we we should be the example of reconciliation, but it's it's quite the opposite. So. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind for some of the listeners who might not be, you know, up to date on the way, you know, First Nations or Indigenous nations um, govern um, and don't maybe know the entire history about the Indian Act and taking our, you know, sovereign nations and through legislation, policy and other practices, kind of dividing them into individual First Nations or often referred to as band councils, what the difference is between, say, a band government, like the mm-hmm. um, Mohawk Council, and the Longhouse government, and how well, they operate together or... Or don't. Yeah, <laughs> or not. <laughs> or don't, yeah. Uh, well, uh, the Longhouse is Rudino uh, Seshaga, which means pe- people of the Longhouse, and we're part of the Iroquois Confederacy, and uh, the Kanyakahaga Nation is one of the, is the elder brother uh, in the in the Confederacy, and um, we are the keepers of the eastern door. We have a belt. Uh, Ganasadaga has a belt as one of the those keepers of the eastern door, and it's a it's a government um, that has your spiritual and political structures entwined. They're not separate, and it survived colonization. Um, the the band councils are. A creation of the Canadian government. They, in 1924, 27, I have to get my dates correct on this, when they made the potlatches illegal, they also made traditional governments, like specifically stated, the Iroquois Confederacy, illegal. And there are stories in Six Nations of the RCMP going into the Longhouse, um, brutalizing people there. I think they killed a clan mother. Uh, brutalizing people in Nakwazasne and um, and just making everything that had to do with traditional governance uh, criminal. And so people had to practice the ceremonies uh, in secret. Um, the church really villainized us uh, and on every level. And the band councils now, um, like after 1990, it became an elected band council. They had a, a sort of a pseudo traditional system they borrowed from the longhouse but it was still a, a band council uh, Indian act system where they had nine nine clan mothers nine chiefs 
uh, three for each clan, right? And now you have a band council that is elected by only one quarter of the, the community. So it's not really representative, but this is who Canada says are the legal authorities and everyone else be damned, uh, to, to put it more succinctly. And so we have struggled to get um, our voices respected. And we say, we don't, we don't need your recognition. We don't care if you recognize this or not. It's not up to you. We have existed pre-contact. We want you to respect our rights. And uh, that's, that's totally not what is happening. So they, they play on the divisions in the community. And they say, oh, we don't know who to talk to. You, should, you guys should all get together. But you look at Canadian or Quebecois society. They're not all of one mind either. But yet we have to be all of one mind to speak to them. And as I told one member of parliament, you know, it's not Canada's business who we send as representatives. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about land negotiations, it's, it's up to, to us as traditional people. Well, and you would think um, that, you know, for something as important as land and knowing that even according to Canada's own laws, it's only the nation itself that has any claim to land, mm-hmm. um, that for their own for their own liability's sake, that they would be talking to the actual rightful landowners and the actual government over the land. Because, I mean, they're they're limiting themselves if they only talk to the band council whose authority is limited under the Indian Act and the reserve boundaries. Well, you would think that, but there is another level of governance um, within the Canadian government, which is a, the bureaucratic culture, as you know. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of resistance. They, they advise ministers, they advise the, you know, the elected people. Uh, in in Parliament, and uh, there's a big resistance. They're scared of us. They're scared of me. I know that they've said mm-hmm. that to me. They're scared yep. of me. But you know, I I um I, as I tell everybody, even if you if you have these assumptions about us, and because you you don't know us to say that, right? Mm-hmm. But that's no excuse to continue fraudulently selling our land and stealing our land. There's no excuse for that. You've all been educated. You know what those mm-hmm. rights are. And there's international uh, obligations um, uh, that go along with it. You know, endorsing the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, uh, the Committee for Elimination on Racial Discrimination, uh, the UN Declaration on Human Rights, all these things are tools we can use along with our own constitution that say, you know, th- we have never ceded our land. Uh, and it's, it's time it stopped because we... We are people of the land, our language, our culture, it's all based on the land, those medicines, the ceremonies, the songs, it's all based on all our relations and, uh, and Mother Earth. So they, and they know that, but there's still, there's still a bureaucracy that is deciding who will sit at the table and when and how much that they, they're willing to give. And I'm wondering, you know, what you think about the fact, because, you know, there's, it's difficult enough um, in, in terms of trying to have the the traditional government um, have their representatives and their voices and say what's happening, you know, knowing that the federal government only represents the band councils, but then the organizations that represent band councils, so you can have them on a tribal council level, a provincial mm. level, a national level, and that kind of extra layer 
which has, you know, may have started out with very good intentions, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, but now mm -hmm. seems to be an extra layer of insulation for the federal government or provincial governments. Well, the, you, you hit the nail on the head there with the insulation uh, to the federal governments, because now, you know, they, they just, they don't even know that they're taking orders from the government. But, um, you know, like you said, the... The old guys, I remember the old guys that used to go, they used to pass the hat and, and uh, give them money to, to, to put gas in their cars to go to mm -hmm. Ottawa. They respected the people who are working in the services and say, okay, mm -hmm. what do you need? What do you want? And today you have a bunch of people who are elected and, and think that all of a sudden uh, knowledge is magically going to appear, come from the sky, going into their minds and they can decide mm -hmm. for everybody what is best for the community when they have no background in any of these issues and they don't seek the advice of the people who have been working in it. It would be different if they did, you know, it would be a totally different story. Yeah. But you yeah. have egos that are being uh, stroked, uh, saying, you know, you guys are the, the, the easiest to work with and, uh, this, you know, it, it's it's just crazy. And, it, and at the end of the day, you know, the, the community finds out too late that agreements have been made and this is this is not democracy this is ex exactly what the colonizer wants which mm -hmm. is oppression to continue to oppress us but in a very sneaky and, and a very alluring way well which looks good to the canadian public it looks mm -hmm. like what they want for reconciliation happy mm -hmm. faces meetings headdresses being exchanged <laughs> ministers being blanketed when when the core issue here is who has the right to speak for a sovereign nation and the answer <laughs> should intuitively be well that sovereign nation themselves and and however they've structured themselves whatever kind of whether it's the longhouse or a traditional government or clan systems or whatever it is mm. versus an organization usurping that role and saying but you know we're gonna we're gonna speak for all sovereign mm -hmm. nations in this country that would be like i just can't see that replicated anywhere else in the world where anyone presumes that authority no, it's it's only here in Canada. It's 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 uh, it's it's implemented, um, and you know there there's there's a purpose for a band council as a service provider, mm -hmm. an administrator, mm -hmm. but it needs to be done by people who actually have the background in finance or the background yep. in these kinds of services. And I know they've got plenty of time to go to to educate themselves on this because this is how we live today. We don't live. The way yep. our ancestors did in, in longhouses, and I don't think people would want that anyways. We like we're very individualistic now. Mm -hmm. But you know, the thing about Gayanara Saragoa, which is the great law of peace, the shining uh, law of peace, is that it is it is supposed to adapt to the times that people are living in. And when when we do that, we we're able to bring our democracy to an, a higher level and a different level. But still having that foundational understanding of those ancestral teachings of being kind to the earth, being respectful to the earth, leaving something, a legacy behind for, you know, the ones who are babies right now, the ones, those, those future generations, those faces not yet born. And uh, and people talk about, well, you you're, you have to be respectful in everything you do. Yeah, we we try to be respectful to everybody. But when you are trying to take away the life force that gives us that life, the, the earth and, and everything that grows on it, 
then it's time to push back. And if, if our, our words are ammunition, that's one thing. I, I mean, I try to, to be as respectful as mm -hmm. I can. But it's, it's you know, the, sometimes, you know, like for, for me, I've, I had cancer. I got a second chance. I don't tolerate BS anymore. Yeah. And I'm thinking there's no time to waste on uh, not hurting people's feelings. I, try, yes. I still try to be respectful. But being yeah. nice to the settlers and people, the collaborators with the settlers, is not getting us anywhere. And sometimes you do have to talk tough. Our ancestors used to scold us. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I'm at that age. I'm 60 years old now. So I can, I can you know, feel comfortable in scolding. Um, I try and hold it back sometimes, but, um, you know, I think we're at a point, we're at a pivotal point and a crossroads for Indigenous people, not just here in Ganesadage, where we're, we have to make up our mind, which path are we going down, like that two-row wampum, are we going to mm -hmm. straddle, or are we going to actually make a choice of, yes, we like the colonizer's way, we like assimilation completely, and we're going to leave our language and culture behind, um, practice it at powwow time. Or are you going to actually try and keep those those that legacy of our ancestors alive, and protect the land, protect the people mm -hmm. and language and culture? It's 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 very different thing, and I think people need to educate themselves on our own. People need to educate themselves, and mm -hmm. we're 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 nations of hurt people because of oppression, because of Indian residential school, because of murdered and missing Indigenous women and men, and. Um, no fancy word or amount of money is going to help us unless we start helping ourselves and educating ourselves on, on what our history and who we are as Oklahoma people. You know, I'm I'm really glad to hear you say that because, you know, you see this play out in, you know, big giant meetings. You see it play out in smaller meetings where, you know, federal and provincial governments, municipalities, even corporations use our our protocols, our mm -hmm. traditions against us. They know that we will always do our best to extend a hand in peace. We will always be respectful. We try to be kind. We try to exhaust every possible option. And they do they use that against us. And then and then, you know, even with people. First Nations who are collaborating or First Nation organizations who are collaborating or working against, say, the interest of, uh, of another First Nation, they too use those protocols knowing that it takes an awful lot for us to kind of cross that line and have to call somebody out because we prefer mm -hmm. not to do that. We prefer to work together with one voice when we can. But when unity means we're just unifying into assimilation, yeah. um, you know, I, I agree with you. And, and you know, people are taken aback when people speak out. People, uh, you know, sometimes don't react very well. But I think mm -hmm. it's incumbent upon us because then it's about our future. It's about our generations. And when you're talking about land, I mean, it's one thing if it's a small economic development project or another, mm -hmm. you know. But we're talking about land. And land is the only thing that sustains a nation. Mm -hmm. And it's our and it's our future generations. So I'm I'm glad you said that because you're one of the most you know respectful, soft-spoken, kind-hearted people I've ever met. <laughs> and you. so you know for that to come from you, I mean you've always you, you know you symbolize all of our protocols and traditions and cultures and respect and 
And so, you know, for you to be feeling this way gives me some, you know, comfort knowing that because I've been very frustrated for a long time, <laughs> saying <laughs> like, we are being too nice. When do we get to just not be nice and say, mm -hmm. stop, we're, we're in a crisis all of our land is going to be taken. Well, well, that's it exactly. And, and um, you very eloquently put it together, uh, I think, much better than I could. But it's, it, is, it is something that I think people need to be aware of, that we are always expected to be good little Indians, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the impact of Indian residential school of, you know, not to be seen, not to be heard is the best mm -hmm. thing. Um, you know, we have, you mentioned before, the, the headdresses and stuff, you know, those... Mm -hmm from what I understand, those are things that are given to people who have earned it. Mm -hmm. And and when you give things done in a token way, it, it takes away the meaning of from those who actually have earned it. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we need to, st we need to really start talking to each other. We're, 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 we're doing that in the longhouse and there are things we, we agree to disagree upon, but we don't have, I don't think we have that, that time anymore to to be nice and uh we can still be respectful but the government is is very good at divide and conquer they're very good at ignoring uh the true voices of the people and the true concerns and they will throw a few crumbs our way and people will say well look you know this is this is what happens to oppressed people they they look at the government when they throw crumbs as as doing us a favor when they they actually are not because while they are giving something on the on the one hand they're taking a whole mm -hmm. bunch on the other and um i you know i'm tired of that because there are nice people in government mm -hmm. but but the world is full of good intentions and uh we have a lot of problems in our communities that we need to address. We we need to figure out how we're going to all survive climate change. And here we are too busy either being divided, uh, being distracted by government who's stealing our land or uh, all these resource mm -hmm. developers coming in. We're, we're just a small community and um, we have been bombarded for the last 29, well, 29 years especially. Where I think we're being held uh, accountant to, we're being... Uh, you know we're we're being punished for tarnishing Canada's uh, international reputation, um, but I think Canada is 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 just a tiny bit better than the U.S. But uh, it's it's easy to spin doctor words. It's mm -hmm. easy to to villainize somebody, and and I don't know. Uh, I think we are we need to wake up and do a better job of of how we're going to do this and. Uh, you know, I think all the nations should get together and, and get away from these government-sponsored organizations, Aboriginal organizations, and and just do things on a volunteer basis and see who shows up. And I, yeah. I don't know. I just I just can't figure out what's it, what it's going to take for our people to wake up because we have been living in crisis situations for many generations. Well, I often wondered. Because, you know, people are always saying, okay, the National Aboriginal Organizations, if they don't play nice, they're going to lose their funding. And I always mm -hmm. thought, okay, what if they lost their funding? Yeah. What if they lost their funding? Mm. That What does that mean? I mean, I never wish any ill on people who have jobs or, or mm -hmm. the organizations themselves. But let's just say the NAOs lost all their funding tomorrow. What What happens? Well, it means that government has to talk to the actual rights holders for anything. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
first of all. And second of all, maybe we would organize ourselves in a different way. Or maybe we would choose to resurrect different organizations, but under different terms. I mean, what is the worst case scenario? People always say, oh, this just can't happen. But it's it's just an organization. You well, know, well, that's as, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. As nations, we should be we should be all be trying to work together as mm-hmm. nations. Um, but it's like colonization has been so successful and assimilation has been so successful. Uh, it's 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 like the you know the the frogs boiling in water or something mm-hmm. or the lobster boiling boiling in water. You don't realize it until it's too late that you're 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 mm-hmm. done for. But we're not done for. I mean, I, yeah. I always, I always continue to have hope. Uh, you know, Mary Tuags early and the 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 women pioneers who made changes to the Indian Act for for equality, mm-hmm. they did it without money. You yep. know, they passed the hat. They had bingos. They had potlucks. Uh, they did stuff like that. And and I think we're talking about what is what is the intention? What is the sincerity uh, of of those who are right now considered leaders and um, for, for me, I don't care about titles. I, I, I care about working with people who are good-hearted, good-minded, mm-hmm. and, and their intention is, is actually genuine to create positive change for, for mm-hmm. all Indigenous people. Because the bureaucratic culture is so huge. I mean, how many hundreds of employees in the government of Canada are working against the, the rights of Indigenous peoples? And yeah. we're all divided into communities. Yeah, so, exactly. Well, look at Indian Affairs, however they call themselves nowadays. They're at least 5,000 people. That's not including wow. all the people at the RCMP, Justice Canada, D&D, Fisheries and Oceans. I mean, mm-hmm. there's literally armies of people working against us. And that's not to say that there aren't good people there. Of course there are. I mean, for a long time, our family members work there, our friends work there. I mean, I spent some time working in the federal government, and I and I believe that most of us go in there trying to make change, thinking that we can go in there and change the horrible ways in which Indian Affairs and Justice Canada and all of the other uh, departments, federally and provincially, how they treat us. But uh, generally, the bureaucrats aren't the ones in power. It's, you know, the ministers and assistant deputy ministers and those are the ones that are making all of the decisions and those are the ones that are maintaining this oppressive and racist status quo that hurts our people i i and it and it's you know it seems like the odds are insurmountable but you know i'm just like a little pebble in the water i'm just i just keep going and like mm-hmm. yourself you you keep going because mm-hmm. you believe that that change is is possible and mm-hmm. no matter what the odds are against us or what's been thrown at us we just have to remember who we are remember those ancestral teachings because they keep us strong and they keep us going uh, exactly because i think without them i don't think i don't know i don't know where i'd be right now to be honest well and and think about all the times that we've resisted I mean, just mm-hmm. what happened with Oka in 1990, it wasn't just what was happening with you. It reinvigorated <laughs> and revitalized and, you know, brought so many Native people together all over Canada and the U.S. to start re-strategizing again. I mean, every mm-hmm. look at Mary Tuax Early and her fight for, you know, changes under the Indian Act or, you know, Cher McIver or, um, you know, Wolverine. You look at all these individuals Without money, without funding, but mm-hmm. they made substantive, 
substantive advancements. Mm-hmm. And and I, and I believe, you know, that regardless with all the problems with the organizations, that it'll continue to be individuals and and grassroots people and others who work with them that are going to make those changes. Like we only survived genocide. You know, we only survived yeah. everything they've thrown at us because you know, individuals decided to hide their ceremonies and keep it alive, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it was against the law. So I figure if they can do that, then we can we can just keep, you know, going on as we are. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, before I let you go, I, I just mm-hmm. wanted to ask you, like, what now? What's going to happen now with the land in, mm-hmm. in your air area? Like, are there some next steps? Are there is there some way of moving forward to protect the territory? Uh, that's a really good question and something that I think we're grappling with, but we're, we're meeting at the Longhouse. Uh, I think there's plans for a march, protest. Uh, we want to keep the issue at the forefront of, mm-hmm. of the public and keep, keep moving. But, um, you know, even, even those national Aboriginal organizations should be supporting us at the grassroots mm-hmm. level. They should they shouldn't they should not be supporting the Met Council, but even though that's one of theirs, but mm-hmm. they should they should educate themselves. You know, there's good people mm-hmm. in those organizations. I think sometimes it's the political uh, influences yep. that that bog them down. So yep. they should they should try and elevate themselves to that point where they are supporting the people and you know they get caught up in the bureaucratic culture like this mm-hmm. this year you know the government's the government's theme is languages but they're doing they're doing nothing really they haven't changed the way they're supporting languages it hasn't we're still nickel and diming it we still have yeah. below par funding for for our languages so let's let's get together and and see how we can elevate it and and uh, you know legislation we have to get rid of bill S24 here in Gunasadaga which harmonizes uh, it's called uh, harmonizing the both, like the municipality of Oka's jurisdiction and and our jurisdiction. It wow. includes be simple, which are you know. No the way! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Art Manual talked about this, but it's one of the few communities in Canada where fee simple is is part of this agreement. We've been trying to get rid of it. Um, if there's anybody out there that knows how we can get rid of it, that that would be most uh, appreciated. Um, I think we need to to try and we're trying to talk with some of the people, the Quebecois that live in the village uh, to understand what our perspective is. They don't like what the mayor is saying. Um, so it's education. And while we're educating them, we can educate the rest of Canada and Quebec. Mm-hmm. But we do have a huge challenge with racism in this area and um, probably in the bureaucratic culture. Um, We'd, we'd like to see the land uh, be a moratorium placed on the land so that mm-hmm. we can discuss what are the solutions for both sides, both communities. Uh, but to understand that the people of the Longhouse, uh, Rudino Sesaga, have to be part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. And you, you cannot exclude us anymore. This is uh, 2019 and uh, it's unacceptable. Uh, I think even at, especially under international human rights standards that the, the Longhouse people are excluded from land negotiations as as the treaty holders to the land, so we'll see. We're going to keep we're going to keep okay. trying to push uh, a solution of some sort. 
Well, Ellen, make sure you let, you know, me and and everyone else know what we can do, whether it's, you know, you know, support behind the scenes, whether it's, you know, petitions or marches or just mm-hmm. getting the information out, public education, whatever you need, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's the whole rest of us in Indian country, you know, that, you know, want to support you because there is nothing more fundamental here than land. And, uh, you know, your community has always been the, the symbol of hope and resistance and, and, you know, I'd like to support you whatever way. So you just let me know. I can share those things on social media. We can do more podcasts. Um, you know, whatever you, Mm -hmm. whatever you think, you just let me know because we want to support you. When you go Pam, I, I deeply appreciate that. And, um, it's it means a lot to me coming from you because you're you're such a strong leader yourself so i will take you up on that offer and um (laughs) and figure out how how that's uh how that we can work together to to make this a good a good outcome for for our people here and uh that'll influence probably the rest of of our, our our brothers and sisters across canada oh good well i'm hoping that this this podcast is part of it and people can you know, get the facts about what's going on. And I want to thank everybody here, of course, for tuning into my show. And I'm sure you'll all be just so blown away by Ellen. I know I am. I've always been a huge fan. And, you know, there are several people, you know, that I use as a guidepost for where I should be on certain issues. And Ellen, I've always, always looked to you and and where you stand on these issues. And I have huge respect for you. And what I'll do, um, at least in the in the meantime, is, you know, share this podcast widely. But I'll also post links to Ellen's blog in my description box so that you can check out some of her past writings um, because she writes on lots of these issues. And if you like this episode, you can consider, you know, supporting this issue, especially by, you know, subscribing, liking the episode, sharing it, commenting on it, you know, sharing it widely across, you know, social justice activists and allies. Um, Leave your comments or questions if you have any in the comment section. I'm also currently hosted on SoundCloud, this forum here, but um, people make sure that they know that they can access this podcast interview with Ellen on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Um, I'll also advertise it on Instagram. I'm Pam underscore Palmiter. And also, um, hopefully we can have some future YouTube videos on this um, because I use my YouTube channel to tackle really difficult political and legal issues. And so thanks again, Ellen. Thanks everyone for listening. And uh, till next time, everyone, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. Walalia.